Alright folks, I'm gonna do another one. This shit just keeps it just just keeps getting more interesting, man. Okay. <clears throat> the stone temples of Kashmir. <laughs> About five hundred miles northwest of the bustling Indian capital of New Delhi lies the serene valley of Kashmir almost a mile above sea level. This picturesque vale, with its meandering rivers, their banks bedecked with exotic flowers and greenery, presents a dramatic contrast to the surrounding snow-clad Himalayas. Throughout the Kashmir's history, <coughs> throughout Kashmir's history, the scenic splendor and cool and cool tranquility of the valley have lured visitors seeking an, seeking an escape from the heat and monsoons of the Indian plains. Today tourists still flock to the glacial peaks or stroll through the remains of Jahangir's 17th century Mughal gardens. Yet these restful features are but one of are but one aspect of Kashmir's story, for the valley has a long history of cultural achievements far beyond its mere 2,100 square miles. <clears throat> during the first, during most of the first millennium after Christ, Kashmir was one of the primary centers of Buddhist learning, attracting pilgrims and scholars from various areas of Asia and training countless others who were sp who were to spread Buddhism. The most famous Chinese pilgrim, Xuan Sang, spent two years here during the 7th century. His translations of Kashmiri texts and his comments on Buddhist doctrine are a valuable record of the life and monuments of 7th century Kashmir. <coughs> In later times, many early Buddhist texts were translated into Chinese by scholars trained in Kashmir or by Kashmiris themselves. By the 3rd century BC, Kashmir was already a stronghold of Buddhism and perpetuated that doctrine for more than a thousand years. Buddhism underwent a number of doctrinaire schisms during its first 500 years following the death of the Buddha around 480 BC. The best known was the split between the Theravada or traditional believers, more frequently known by the pejorative term Hinayana or lesser vehicle and the Mahayana or greater vehicle. The Mahayana objected to the traditional view that one must follow an austere path, including renunciation of, of material things, in order to achieve salvation. Their position made it easier for believers to pursue their daily activities while still moving along the route to enlightenment. <clears throat> this newer path featured savior figures called bodhisattvas who aided the believer and who became prominent members of the Mahayana Buddhist pantheon. The most visible difference between these two major sects was the increased number of deities of the Mahayana 
as in Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, while the earlier Theravadins who flourished especially in Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand venerated a limited number of images. By AD 1000, Buddhism was largely absorbed in India proper by the Hindu faiths and continued only in the adjacent regions of Nepal, Tibet, and Kashmir. The particular branch of Buddhism dominant in Kashmir, the Sarva Stivadin, was one of two main offshoots of the more traditional Theravada or Hinayana. Kashmir remained closer to these beliefs than to those of the Mahayana. The main Hindu faiths also flourished at the same time, and most rulers made donations to the two primary Hindu deities, Siva, Shiva and Vishnu, as well as to the Buddhist establishments. So, so like in India, I guess, before anything, it was always Hinduism. And Hinduism is, uh... <clears throat> That's interesting. So, it was after... Okay. <clears throat> um... Shiva was the most favored, and many of the stone temples of Kashmir were dedicated to different aspects of this god. Late in the first millennium, a distinct school developed, known today as Kashmir Shaivism, that, at, that added profound philosophical dimensions to this already rich tradition. This religious and philosophical activity ceased by the 14th century when the Muslim invaders took over the valley, and today Kashmiris are nearly all f followers of Islam, with only a small Hindu minority. So well known were these cultural achievements that the first kings of Tibet looked to Kashmir for cultural instruction. Wow. The Tibetan written language developed by the 8th century after Christ derives from Kashmir. Hmm. Really? During these centuries, Kashmiri scholars and pilgrims penetrated as far as Southeast Asia, Java, and on into China. Some of India's most illustrious monarchs ruled over the Kashmir Valley, including the 3rd century BC King Ashoka and the famous Kushan Emperor Kanishka who established a city in his own name during the early 2nd century after Christ. India's oldest historical chronicle was written in the 12th century by the Kashmiri Kalhana. His Kaja Tarangini, a remarkable epic of the history of Kashmir, records not only rulers and events, but describes monuments, many of which have now long since disappeared or survive only in fragments. Sir M. Aurel Stein of England translated this valu valuable document in 1990 or in 1900 and tried to find every monument mentioned by Kalana. To this day, Stein's research and maps 
are the primary tool for modern historians and archaeologists who are attempting to reconstruct the early history of Kashmir. <clears throat> the largest and most impressive of Kashmir's archaeological remains are its stone temples. Interesting stone temples all the way up in the mountains. Hmm. Tragically, their grandeur must be imagined for here. Time has been aided by human destruction. Kashmir's great age of temple building took place before the Muslim conquest of the 14th century after Christ. <clears throat> Since then, the majority of the population has followed Islam. One early 15th century ruler, Sikander, even openly followed a policy of destruction, leveling most of the earlier Buddhist and Hindu structures. You gotta love an idiot who just destroys shit, man. Today, piles of stones scattered across the valley attest to the former rich tradition of temple construction. See this temple construction and architecture and history. There's a connection, man. Unlike the Buddhist temples of India, however, the stone monuments of Kashmir reflect the unique composite quality of Kashmir's cultural development. Although Sanskrit became the principal literary language of all India in the 2nd millennium BC, it was preceded in Kashmir by Dardic and Indo-Afghan language still used by some peoples of nearby Gilgit, Balistan, and portions of Afghanistan. Military incursions by the Sakas, Kushans, and Huns from the north as well as migrations of Gujaras from the south and of Tibetans have resulted in a cultural mix in Kashmir unlike any other part of the world. Throughout the early centuries of the first millennium after Christ, Kashmir kept close contact with the area of Gandhara in present-day Pakistan and shared some of the same artistic blending of Hellenistic and Parthian influences. After the decline of the <clears throat> Achaemenid and Hellenistic empires, the latter spread as far as western India and possibly even Kashmir in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's exploits. These cultures were continued by the Parthians, the subsequent occupants of much of this area. The, these semi-nomadic people functioned as cultural intermediaries carrying the Hellenistic and later the Roman cultures to India and bringing Eastern traditions back to the West. Much of the Silk Road, the main trade artery between China and Rome, crossed this territory. China to Rome. <laughs> this is what I'm saying, man. We've been in contact since forever. An Indian ivory figurine discovered beneath the ashes of Pompeii illustrates the early success of this cultural process. Pompeii Volcano. 
These various cultures combined to produce an architecture profoundly different from that of India proper, the source of the Buddhist and Hindu religions for which the Kashmiri temples were built. All of the scattered monuments remaining in Kashmiri are Hindu, with only a few ruined foundations that reflect the Buddhist constructions. The largest and most elaborate stone temples were built during the 8th and 9th centuries after Christ, the era of Kashmir's greatest political power. Lalitaditya Mukta Pida, the most famous monarch who ruled during the second quarter of the 8th century, extended Kashmir's influence belong beyond its borders and engaged in an ambitious building program of both Hindu and Buddhist temples. His best-known monument, the Sun Temple at Martand, is the valley's single most dramatic temple. Surrounded by arched colonnades, the temple compound covers an area of 67 by 43 meters. Although Kashmir's political strength weakened in the following centuries, a number of stone temples of high quality were constructed, such as the temple at Avantipur, erected in the 9th century. After this, however, there are few remains beyond some small but well-crafted examples, such as the temple at Pandrethan, dating to about the 10th or 11th century. By the 12th century, when Kalhana wrote, the age of the great stone temples was gone and the era of the Muslims was about to begin. Many of the typical features of the Kashmiri stone temple can be seen in the recent reconstruction of the 9th century shrine of Avantipur. This temple was rebuilt by the archaeological survey team in the first decades of the 20th century and is now visited by most tourists because its entrance gate stands beside the main highway south from Srinagar, the capital of Kashmir. This distinctive roof design is well preserved in the small Hindu temple at prayer at or sorry at Pyre, about twenty kilometers from Srinagar, dedicated to Shiva and his Lakulisa form in his Lakulisa form, one of Shiva's incarnations. Lakulisa, a form of Shiva based on an actual person, is believed to have lived sometime around the first century after Christ near Baroda in the Gujarat state, the area along the western coast of India above Bombay. A renowned Shaiva teacher, Lakulisa, was apothecized into a cult figure after his death, known as Lord of the Staff. What? 
He is usually represented as seated in yogic or meditating posture, much like a Buddha image, and he carries his primary attribute, the club. Yo, doesn't, doesn't, uh, don't some of the gods in Greece have a club, or also, uh, the Lord of the Staff reminds me of Psalm, what, 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm telling you, this area up here, there's something to that. Okay, the Pyre Temple is composed of only 11 stones erected on top of a stone platform to a height of 6.4 meters. Inside the 2.4 meter square room has four arched doorways and is capped by a circular dome with a winged figure in each of the spandrels flanking the arches. The decorative figures appear to hold the dome aloft in a manner known earlier from western domes of Roman times. Each of the four doorways has a triangular pediment with a trefoil niche inside. These enclose a form of Shiva, a different image for each direction. On the principal door, on the principal eastern doorway, Shiva is portrayed as Lakulisa. He is seated, cross-legged, and in his left hand carries a club. A rich floral decoration forms the capital on top of each square pilaster. Yo, this is this is crazy! Like a series of geese with foliate tails supports the triangular pediments. Yo, geese, swan, this imagery and Greek imagery comes to mind. Okay, the upper roof includes a small dormer similar in shape to the openings below. A melon-like ornament called an Amalaka rests on top of the roof. Similar decorations may have also crowned each pediment. The inside of the temple is empty except for the stone lingam, the phallic-shaped Hindu symbol of Shiva found in all Shiva temples, which I think this symbol and the menorah and a volcano and a vortex and labia, all the same thing. It's all that the way energy works, DNA, the double serpent helix vortex. That's how energy moves, I think. <clears throat> okay, um, the exact date of the Pyre Temple is unknown, but based on its style, it could have been constructed as early as the late 8th century after Christ. A similar temple is found five kilometers from Srinagar at Pandrethan. Pandrethan. Pan is already, we know what Pan is. Pan is the god of, uh, uh, Pan, the god of nature, right? Probably built a century or more later, this temple is also dedicated to the Lakulisa form of Shiva. Let me look up this Lakulisa form. The fuck is this? Shiva. 
Kulisha, meaning the Lord with a staff or a mace or club or stick, was a prominent Shaivite revivalist, reformist, and preceptor of the doctrine of the Pashupatas, one of the oldest sects of Shaivism. This guy kind of makes me think of David too, King David and the Psalms. Alright, anyways. Where was I? Alright, a similar temple, okay. Look who's form. Pandrethan is essentially a larger version of Pyre, but its decorative moldings are more effaced and all except one of the reliefs in the trefoil niches are missing. The ceiling at Pandrathan is far more far more elaborate than at Pyre or any other Kashmiri monument. A series of overlapping squares is richly decorated with flying figures and floral patterns. Although this type of ceiling is rare in India, it is well known in other areas. Originally based on wooden models, this style is usually called the lantern ceiling. It has been studied both for its interesting geometric mandala-like forms <laughs> as well as for its often complex symbolism. We all know what this is, right, folks? The <laughs> geometric mandala-like. Yes, we know what this means. The mandala shape presents a circle enclosed inside a square and symbolically reflects the mystical universe in both Hindu and Buddhist beliefs. Lantern ceilings are known in the Western world from Parthian remains at Nyssa in northern Iran, perhaps as early as the 2nd century BC, and at various Hindu sites. Hindu sites in Afghanistan, Central Asia, China, and Korea. While the lantern ceiling type may not be common within India itself, where circular designs are preferred, the floating figures and lotus patterns here are typically Indian. Interestingly, at the com interestingly, at the center of the ceiling is a lotus, more commonly associated with Buddhist monuments. Although this arrangement is not unknown in Hindu ceilings, it may be another example of the absorption of early Buddhist concepts by Hindu architects of Kashmir. This borrowing of Buddhist designs can be seen more clearly in the use of the colonnade found in most Kashmiri Hindu constructions. Nearly all the stone temples consist of a main shrine, a prominent gateway and a surrounding colonnade made up of a succession of small trefoil shaped openings which are often protected by a projecting roof supported by columns. In Kashmir this colonnade pr probably was first employed in, in Buddhist monastic buildings 
where a central shrine was surrounded by monks' cells. There is ample literary evidence for considerable numbers of Buddhist establishments in Kashmir well before the 8th century when the temple at Buniyar was erected. The Hindu architects simply carried on the existing tradition. The niches along these colonnades show no evidence of ever having contained images and in fact Kashmiri shrines generally contain fewer relief sculptures than contemporary temples in India. These niches could have been suitable as small monastic cells since they were too deep for the display of images. The central shrine, the focus of the Kashmir complex, reached its most complex development by the mid-8th century after Christ. At Martand, the ruler Lalitaditya erected a monumental temple dedicated to the sun god Surya. Mm. Here, the various elements of the Kashmiri tradition were rendered on a scale and in a location unequaled anywhere in the valley. The Martand Temple sits on the slope of a hill commanding a view of almost all of Kashmir. A canal brings fresh water into the compound and the profusion of trees and flowers contributes to the creation of a majestic religious monument. Even in its present ruined condition, Martin gives pause to its visitors, for here is a remarkable construction bringing east and west together on a grand scale. Yeah, man, just think about, like, Aladdin in real life. Like, this type of shit was happening back in the day of real life. Alright, um... Its fluted columns and arched colonnade recall western models while its trefoil niches inside double pediments inside double pediments reflect the local Kashmiri mode of pent roof design unlike the other Kashmiri stone temples with their single sanctuary however Martin follows the traditional Indian practice of placing the sanctum to the rear of the temple preceded by two connecting areas or mandapas. Two small shrines were added at the front, giving the worshipper an impression of a three-abreast facade. This three-part sanctuary derives from India, as do the various images that adorn its surfaces. The roof, however, re retains some of the typical corbelled arches favored throughout Kashmir. Yeah, I'll put the link in the description. You can check out the pictures. It's basically square within the square and has a circle inside. It's, it's all sacred geometry. Alright. Uh, today the many images and decorative relief reliefs that once graced this temple are, ba are badly worn and damaged. In addition to the river goddess Ganga and Yamuna, the central complex contains portrayals of Shiva, Vishnu, and Surya, the latter two associated with the sun. Images of Surya may derive in part 
from the solar cults long known from nearby Persia. This is especially likely given Kashmir's active contact with Western Asia. The 9th century temples at Avantipur provide an even better idea of Kashmir's decorative richness and the constant flow of outside influences. Here stand the remains of two temples erected by King Avantivaram in a style and plan copied from Martand. Both have equally rich decoration, if not similar size. These two shrines were severely damaged by the Islamic Sikandar in the 15th century. In recent years, many of the fragments have been restored to their original positions at the suggestion of John Marshall, Director General of Archaeology in India. Local officials began excavations in 1910. They partially cleared the site and in 1913, D.R. Sani was sent by Marshall to complete the task. The large entrance gate is carved on all sides and like the Temple of Martand, the gateway is joined to a colonnaded cloister. Cloister. In the center, the single main shrine sits on top of its platform, preceded by the ritual tank where the devout performed a symbolic cleansing before entering the temple. Each of the four corners of the enclosed courtyard had a small separate shrine. This type of construction, known as a panchayatana, was popular throughout Kashmir. Among the scattered remains of the two temples are some of the finest examples of Kashmiri architectural decoration. Attached columns and pilasters embellish the, the wall surfaces in the colonnade. The variety of patterns ranges from roundels that enclose lotuses, geese, mythical creatures, and paired humans to miniature niches containing standing figures. Others alternate human figures with decorative motifs of birds and flowers running from the base to the triang triangular pediment. The different patterns give the Avantipur temple walls a livelier quality than the fluted columns of earlier temples. Many patterns are drawn directly from the Sasanian culture of Persia and are found on silver textile and terracotta objects that were widely known in the northwestern part of India by Avanti Varman's time. A number of stone images discovered among the ruins of these temples between 1910 and 1915 were removed to the Sri Pratap Singh Museum in Srinagar. Several reliefs still remain at the site, including a small panel less than one meter high that may well be a portrait of the king himself. He is seen standing with his queen at his side. The king wears modest clothing appropriate in his role as a devotee. Both king and queen express humility in their pose and downcast gaze. Avanti, Avantivaram, that downcast gaze is back in right now. <laughs> Avantivaram, who ruled AD 855 to 83, was one of 
Kashmir's most beloved monarchs and is honored by Kalhana for giving Kashmir an era of peace and wise rule. One of the consistent features of Kashmiri stone buildings is their large scale. It is not uncommon for, to find dress stones 2.5 to 3 meters long and 1 to and 1 to 1.25 meters in diameter at Parihasapura the ruined stupa of Kankuna built during the 8th century after Christ measures a grandiose 39 meters on each of its four sides it may once have soared nearly 30 meters hmm Another construction at this site includes a pillared hall where each shaft measuring 1.3 meters in diameter rests on top of a platform of stones over 275 meters across. The use of lime mortar and metal dowels aided builders in erecting such monumental construction. At Fatigar, near Baramula, five kilometers to the west are the remains of a large stone shrine dedicated to Shiva. Alright, so this is crazy. Sh Shiva was even being worshipped all the way up in Kashmir. Okay, at the entrance to the square Sela, or the shrine proper, sit several stones measuring 3.2 by 0 0.6 by 1 meter each. A colossal Shiva Lingam once occupied the center of the stone floor. The chamber itself measures 8.8 .8 meters on each side, making the room even larger than the central shrine at Martin. The immediate area of this temple has been taken over by a small village. No excavations have yet been undertaken to find the colonnade which probably surrounded the temple, likely the largest temple or colonnade yet found in Kashmir. In recent years, much attention has been given to Kashmiri bronze casting and the large stone statues that once occupied these temples. The temples themselves, however, have received little no notice, certainly when compared with the numerous studies of, of stone temples in the rest of India. Unlike the temples of India, the Kashmir, Kashmiri structures did not have entire surfaces covered with relief. While the Kashmiri builders borrowed some elements of Indian architecture, they tended to avoid the most prominent features such as the shikara and the mandapas. Their preference for simple massive stonework, pent roofs, lateral ceilings, and decorated columns represents not so much a divergence from Indian models for most of these features can be found in India as it does syncretism where Indian Roman West and Ace as it does a syncretism where Indian Roman and West Asian traditions are blended into a regional style that can be recognized as a distinctive part of South Asian architecture.
Okay, so. Oh, man. This whole area. It's pretty interesting because it has so much history of just of um, of 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 all these different uh, civilizations okay there's there was one another one um, Anyways, I think, wait a minute, what the fuck, this is in Kashmir, hold up, I might, I might have another one, mm. okay, I had opened this, but I didn't know if I wanted to read it, but, uh, okay. Fuck it, I'll read it. This is the Megalith of Bursahom, Kashmir. A new prehistoric civilization from India. Okay. Um, present condition of Megalith. Previously, it was said that the present condition of this megalithic site is far from complete. Its ruinous state may be either the result of vandalism on the part of the villagers or it may be due to systemic, systematic destruction at the hands of an invading enemy. The latter possibility seems especially plausible in the view of the colorful, colorful history of Kashmir. I agree. The first inspection of the site did not reveal any signs of recent destruction. To be sure, there were a few shallow pits which looked as if treasure hunters had dug into the soil. There were no signs of recent quarrying activities on any of the rock slabs. The villagers would hardly need this rock for their houses are abode built, and if stones are needed for a foundation, it is far easier for them to collect pebbles from the neighboring stream bed. Also, there would be little inclination to destroy a monument for which they, as Mohammedans, entertain such respect that they continue to bury their dead right next to the megaliths. It is more probable that the site was tampered with during one of the many religious wars which swept Kashmir at the close of the 10th and again at the end of the 14th century. A turn from Hindu to Mohammedan rule, or from Buddhist to Hindu dynasties, may well have caused the respective victors to extinguish the flame of rival worship. The effects of this destruction are evident, evident from one inclined position of three slabs in contrast to the upright form of the center stones two line okay the megaliths are arranged in such a form as to suggest a cromlech type of structure that is for example a center group 
around which are found one or two alignments of stones. In this instance, a center group is clearly recognizable while the outer alignments do not at first sight give the impression of a preconceived plan. However, with the aid of such rock slabs as are still visible in the soil and by tracing a few intermediate pits marking former rocks, it is possible to attempt a reconstruction which, though incomplete, conveys at least the major outlines of an architectural plan. Yo, this is crazy. I never knew that there were megaliths up in Kashmir. Check this out. Like all the other rocks, these slabs are fashioned of trap, a volcanic rock formation commonly encountered on both flanks of the valley. It is noteworthy that the nearest source for this material, material is hardly two miles distant. The trap found here is somewhat schistose. Schistos. Its columnar cleavage is faintly preserved. The presence of these two textile lines, texture lines, makes it very probable that the slabs were quarried in a fashion which allowed the workmen to make the most use of the existing cleavage. Hence, the present shape of these rocks may well may well be natural a second group of stones may be called inner ring or crescent this is faintly represented by two slabs standing 26 feet distant to the okay A fourth stone of the inner ring, when put in upright position, would come to stand between the center and the slab at the right-hand corner of the sketch. These four stones by themselves do not readily convey the impression of a half-circle, for there is a wide gap between the southwestern... Okay. Hmm. How very real this relation be relationship between stone alignments and religious beliefs is may be seen from the numerous stone circles, cairns, and single commemorative stones in the adjoining land of Indian Tibet or Ladakh. This also makes me think of uh, Jacob setting up the stone and naming it Peniel. Gian Roerich has even observed cromlex and stone alignments in Tibet proper, showing east to west orientation. I have found sacred Tibetan shrines encircled by upright stones in the upper Indus Valley in Ladakh. These and related stone monuments appear to have originated with the Bonpo cult of pre Buddhist days and may have sprung from a megalithic building culture of very early Vedic times. V 
Vedic times. Okay, so these are the fuckers that did. They're the ones. Okay. There are on there are on the neighboring hilltop indications of other megaliths. The place lies due east of our site from which it is separated by a narrow deep ravine. I found here two larger rock slabs almost completely buried in the soil and in addition indications of a rough foundation about two feet below the surface. J. L. Carter mentioned stone alignments and tumuli a few miles northwest of Borsahum. He wrote of finds of polished Celts, hose, and other artifacts from numerous localities in the outlet of the Sindh Valley. These scattered data indicate that our site is one of several, and while it may well mark the most prominent locality, it should be it should be viewed as representing one or several prehistoric cultures. Okay. Hmm. It's interesting because when I the when I was looking up um the stuff about the towers of the Himalaya, the lady said the older ones were closer up to the top of the mountain. The older towers were closer up to the top of the mountain, so it's just interesting. I guess it's like they it it shows you the the transition from nomadic to city state the towers went from up in the mountains to down in the valleys all right uh let me see the polished celts recorded from various places in the kashmir valley may have been manufactured right in the country this is suggested by the find of a large grinding stone in one of the larger slope valleys that issue from the Pir Panjal Mountains. A large boulder of quartzite was found by me in the summer of 1935, which showed seven elongated grooves on its surface, each measured about six inches in length and one and a half inches in depth. The judge from to judge from their shape, these grooves could have been produced only by repeated repeated grinding of elongated stones such as okay, blah blah blah. The site lies on a wide terrace some thirty feet above the Vishav River. Of all the five terraces in Kashmir which resulted from climatic changes of the ice age and post glacial periods, this is the only one having a thick, loamy soil. On it, agriculture is being practiced on a profitable scale, and in the narrow valleys, most settlements are found on this level. Whether these relationships have any special bearing upon the distribution of prehistoric settlements remains to be seen.
Check this out. The cave at Imselwar. In the summer of 1935, I had asked Mr. D. Sen, a member of my field party and trained at the, guess where, University of Calcutta, to make inquiries into the occurrence of caves in Kashmir. Despite diligent search, no very important sites were located by him, but through his explorations, I became interested in one particular cave that had been reported some time ago by E. Radcliffe. The place was said to contain a bone bed and appeared, for this reason, rather promising. In July of that year, I made an excursion to that place. My companions, Mr. T.T. T. Peterson and A.N. Iyengar of the Geological Survey of India, were present when we entered the cave after an uneventful encounter with a family of brown bears. Look at this shit. <laughs> the entrance was low and led steeply down about 45 feet to a junction of two passages. The larger of these led due north into what seemed to have given shelter to the bears, a large cavity in limestone without any trace of a cave deposit. The other narrower passage descended for another 20 feet when a cleft was encountered through which we could just manage to walk upright. This also was in crystalline limestone, but the walls were coated with ochre and at one place a small vein of hematite was seen. At a height of almost six feet was a shoulder or ledge of brown cave loam and in it we found a number of deer antlers. These were of an unusually strong kind yet most were broken off at the base. No teeth or other remains were found so that we received the impression that the antlers had been introduced into this narrow passage by people who had employed them in digging activities. As the cave loam contained lumps of ochre, it seemed to us rather obvious that we had to deal with an ancient ochre mine. Radcliffe, in his brief account, mentions deer antlers, presumably representing the Indian sambar. And he also mentions pig and antelope. While the last is extinct in the Kashmir Valley, the pig was identified as Sus scrofa. Now it so happens that this species has no known ancestors in India, the domestic variety having probably been bred from Sus Christatus. Christatus status Christatus a form which was already domesticated around 3000 BC in the lower Indus Valley in other words the people who had used staghorn for mining purposes had feasted on this wild boar it so happens that the remains of this animal at Bur Sahom also suggest the non-Indian species rather than the indigenous form at Bursahome, Bursahome 
also appeared teeth of deer and lumps of ochre in association with the prehistoric pottery. It is a well-known fact that in Europe and in Turkestan, late Neolithic and Metal Age sites are frequently characterized by remains of the Scrofa pig. I mention these relationships because they appear to be suggestive of a prehistoric culture which in China and Western Central Asia antedated the later phases of Metal Age civilizations. From a geographical point of view, it is significant that our site lies between two regions of supreme archaeological importance, the Indus Valley to the south and Western Central Asia to the north. That's the area I'm interested in. The cent Western Central Asia, I think. That's where a lot of shit went down, I think. To the northwest lie the ancient migration corridors of the Pamir Valleys, while to the northeast and east extend the storm-bitten highlands of Tibet. With all of these regions, Kashmir still entertains trade connections. The most important of these are the routes leading south to the Indian Plains and north to the fertile oasis belt of the Central Asian Desert, in Xinjiang. Look at this shit. Sin. There we go with the sin again. In the bazaar of Srinagar, one may still see the tra traders from Kashgar, Khotan, Badak, Badakhshan, and Tashkent. From time immemorial, the Vale of Kashmir has been the prize of numerous adventurous exploits and daring raids executed by warring peoples from beyond the Pamir, by Chinese armies from beyond the Trans-Himalaya, and by Indian lords coming either from the northwestern frontier or from the plains of the Punjab. Hence, we may expect of any archaeological site in Kashmir a reflection of a much mixed history in which either Indian or Central Asian elements may predominate. To one like myself who has traveled in the adjoining regions of Kashmir, it is quite evident that there exist close analogies in the environmental makeup between the Vale of Kashmir and the fertile foothills of Central Asian mountains. In both areas, the people live by a fortuitous, fortuitous combination of economic resources which are intimately linked with irrigation and highland pastures. In the case of Kashmir, it is rice, and in Chinese Turkestan or Xin, Xinjiang, it is maize that demands intensive irrigation work. Fishing, basketry, and pottery are important sources of income in both countries. Both have in common the practice of summer pasturage for sheep, goats, and buffaloes, 
and this introduces a nomadic element into the lives of the people whose ancestors had time and again met the onslaught of Central Asian nomads. It is this geographical aspect of Kashmir that needs to be emphasized in any consideration involving cultural relationships between Kashmir and neighboring lands. Mm. Let's see what else. All right, characteristics. Right, let me just go through real quick. All right, so characteristics and probable age of second culture level. Previously, it was made evident that below the Superficial, superficial, Buddhist culture stratum lies a second level which contains indications of crude foundations and a funerary and of funerary deposits as well as a special type of pottery. The burnished dark pottery found in this level has a certain diagnostic value because of the geometrical incised decoration. In India proper, such blackware appears in the later levels at Mohenjo-daro, but without the incised neckbands. Not far from there, near Jhangar, N.G. Majumdar excavated bell, breaker, bell beakers and incised polished blackware, but unfortunately no detailed description of this ware was given. The only definite comparison we can make is with an urn fragment from level 2 of the northern Kurgan at Anau in Russian Turkestan. Similar where occurs in the China's Chinese province of Kansu in eastern Central Asia. In these two instances it appears to belong to an early metal age culture, surely not most much older than 2000 BC. Megalith builders in Iran, according to J.D. Morgan, were also in possession of metal. The advanced methods of treating form and materials such as is okay. Um, where are we at? Oh, damn, this one has a lot of pictures. Ooh. All right, uh, where are we at? Let me just check real quick. All right, so let's see. It's just like so much stuff, man. So much stuff. Okay. Traces of historical relationships between 
Kashmir and Central Asia, or Iran, have been discussed by scholars like Sir Arl Stein and others. Their arguments are based mainly on the on archaeological data, though there are instances in which village names have led to speculation about the origin of settlements bearing names of historical personages or Indian deities. For instance, Sir Arl Stein traced the origin of the village Kanishpur near Baramula to the name of the Indo-Scythian ruler Kaniska, who lived in the first century and whose name is to do is to be found in the well-known Sanskrit chronicle Raja Taranjini. Frequent use of the Sanskrit word Pur or Pura, meaning village, in Kashmir village names indicates how ancient these settlements are, for Kashmir was conquered by Islamic rulers as early as the close of the 14th century, and the knowledge of Sanskrit Sanskrit was thereafter generally confined to a very small group of learned Hindu priests. In most instances, Sanskrit names date back to the Golden Age of Kashmir, example to the first millennium of our era. This is why the word Pur or Pura is so frequently combined with the name of a Hindu or Buddhist deity as in Indra Pura. Since many settlements in the Vale of Kashmir bear names of historical personages or religious customs of 2,000 years ago, it is highly probable that some of these village names reflect the influence of non-Indian cultures. Of these, the Indo-Scythian kings can be expected to have left a very marked impression upon the native culture, for they reigned for almost four centuries over Kashmir. I think the Scythians are the Mongols, aren't they? I may be completely wrong. It's commonly held that these rulers led an invasion of warring nomadic tribes from Western Central Asia, where they had taken over political heritage from the Chinese Han Empire. Yeah, I think these are the Mongols. These tribes presumably came from the steppes north of the Pamir Mountains and their home may well have been in the highlands of Iran, for wherever they left traces of their conquest, we have written testimony in an Iranian dialect known as Karoshti. Okay, sorry, maybe these were the Iranians, not the Mongols. Okay, um, their religion was a modified form of Zoroastrianism. One of these foreign rulers, carrying the name of Mihi Rakula reigned over a vast empire between southern Afghanistan, Kashmir, and central India. According to A. Stein, this name contains in its first part the Iranian name of the sun god, corresponding to the Avestic Mithra or Miopo of the Indo-Scythian coinage. Gold and other coins issued by this ruler and by his father display the emblem of a sun wheel or swastika, either alone or with the Shivaic emblems. They show the dress of Iranian royalty, the scaled armor, 
also the fire altar and the bundle of sacred twigs held over it. The Karosti script must have been commonly used, especially during the 4th century, for at Harwan, in the Vale of Kashmir, many tiles bear Karosti numerals, which were undoubtedly inscribed by common laboring people. But the greatest influence was undoubtedly exerted by the court of these Indo-Scythian kings in their entourage in their entourage could be found priests from Iran who practiced Mazdaism, which was the state religion in their native land between AD 212 and 640. The influence of these court ceremonies upon the cultural pattern of the native people must have been very great and lasting indeed. Hence it is not surprising to find amongst Kashmir village names what in my opinion is indication of Iranian customs in the Kashmir of 1500 to 2000 years ago. This also bears upon the meaning of the name of our megalithic site. Following a suggestion of Carter's that the ending home in Kashmir village names might have something to do with the Iranian cult of the, guess what, Homa plant, the Soma plant, I have traced a great many of these places on the map. The settlements are seen to cluster around important valley outlets such as the Vishav, Verospur, and Sindh rivers all have in common a high position above the alluvial plain and in most cases the settlements lie on the edge of elevated tablelands. Such a pattern of distribution contrasts with that displayed by localities bearing names with the ending Pur or, or Gam. As previously mentioned, Pur or Pura is the Sanskrit word for village or homestead and Gam is its Kashmiri synonym. These localities are more commonly found on alluvial ground and many of them follow the river systems upstream and into the higher mountains. While I do not agree with Carter that the settlements bearing the affix hum date back to Vedic times, it would seem to me quite appropriate to regard them as having originated at the time when Iranian influences were felt all over Kashmir. Example in the first half of the first millennium of our era. According to the authority of Sir George Grierson, the Kashmiri, Kashmiri word hum or hum means an oblation with fire or a burnt offering. In other words, the affix home refers to a locality where fire worship was practiced. Mm. If this is so, then we should have to find some tangible evidence of this ancient Iranian cult. Before doing this, it should be noted that for the Zoroastrian worshipper, the word Homa signifies a plant held sacred on account of its assumed healing power. Mm -hmm. Healing power. Alright, give me a second. Okay, where was I? <clears throat> mm -hmm. 
twigs of this plant used to be offered on the fire altar, a practice which must have been in use at the court of the Indo-Scythian kings, as illustrated on their coinage. It kind of reminds me of Abraham and Isaac too. The twigs, fire altar. Alright, this Homa cult must have given rise to numerous settlements in the Kashmir Valley. And for reasons of religious tradition, such places were located on high ground because their sun worship should have proved more effective in the eyes of the community. I have already indicated that such a condition regarding a chosen geographical location is generally met with at places designated with the affix home, yet much more circumstantial evidence for the, evi for the existence of ancient fire-worshipping traditions in the Vale of Kashmir can be given. <coughs> I was able to verify fire worship practices at some places, such as at Nikahom, a large community in the northwestern corner of the valley near Handawar. When I visited this place in 1932, a farmer led me to a locality where smoke and blue flames issued from a narrow cleft in the soft Silt, st silt stone rock. That sounds like blue flames, smoke and blue flames. That sounds like a volcano. Geologic geological investigation revealed soon enough that this fire came from a burning lignite bed, which apparently had been ignited by spontaneous combustion. The farmer told me the farmer told me that some people make offerings at this place though I was unable to clarify the exact nature of the cult in another instance at the village of Durham similar circumstances occurred and here the village headman claimed that a fire altar had existed when he was a young man which must have been at the beginning of this century Again, there are village names bearing the ending home in connection with some with such deities as Indra. Another in another case reference is made to a temple. If in such cases the Iranian derivation of the word home is made plausible by reference to religious practices commonly held to have originated in Iran, it is equally probable that the name of our site, Barsahom, have a similar derivation. This word is very similar to the Iranian Barsam, meaning a bundle of twigs of the sacred Homa plant. This similarity becomes real only when we realize that in Kashmiri words of Sanskrit or other foreign origin, quite commonly show faulty transcription and pronunciation. In addition, it should be noted that the map makers of our time have frequently fallen prey 
to careless practices in pronouncing or transcribing village names. This applies to the word Bursahome. The natives pronounce this word like Bursahome, in which the U is heard like a short and softly uttered open E, as in Bethel. Hence, quite possibly, the difference between the Iranian Barsom and our locality name Barsahom is not real. Now, if our suggestion is right that this word is identical with the Iranian Barsom, then it follows that our megalithic site must, in historical times, have been held sacred by fire worshippers. This could have been true only during the reign of the Indo-Scythian dynasty. The presence of these megaliths might well have induced a Zoroastrian, Zoroastrian priest to worship at such a locality. We should remember that it is a quite common thing for, for religiously inclined people to accept and even develop established cult traditions, even if these do not happen to agree strictly with their own cult practices. For instance, at Barsahom, the Mohammedan villagers prefer to bury their dead right next to the megalithic site, as if that place continues to exert, by its sheer mysteriousness, a, a special attraction. If it is natural for simple village folk to honor a local tradition, how much more probable Probable is the spectacle of a sun-worshipping priest erecting a temporary altar amidst a group of giant stones displaying a definite orientation toward the sun. It seems to me that the plausibility of this assumption would explain the Iranian origin of the name Barsahom without committing us to the improbable notion that the edifice itself is of historical date. Okay, okay, do I want to keep reading here? Um, no, I think I'll leave it at that one. This one's already gone too long. All right, peace.